From CPR News, this is a special Colorado Matters. Coming back from broken can take many forms. When I was finally able to kind of sit up in a chair without feeling physically in pain and actually notice that there was light outside the window, then I realized, you know, I'm actually getting better, that I'm, I'm actually myself. Catherine Cho's recovery had nothing to do with drugs or alcohol. Matthew Jarvis's did, and it transformed his life in ways he never imagined. I just had a moment of like, damn, I need to stay. I need to finish this thing out. People care about me, and I need to care about myself. The host and creator of CPR's recovery podcast, Back From Broken, Vic Fella, joins us with standout moments from season two and with a reminder that we are all broken sometimes. Colorado Public Radio is able to bring you what you need in a news and music service because of generous financial support from members. A special thank you to everyone who gave during the recent membership drive. Together, you strengthened the financial backbone of CPR and through your support, helped plant trees around the state. Thank you for your gift and thank you for making an extra impact in Colorado. This is a special Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, journeys of recovery, stories of people who've come back from broken. That includes CPR host Vic Vela. He recently tweeted, I'm only alive because I said the most courageous three words I've ever said in my life. I need help. His own journey is the inspiration behind CPR's podcast, Back From Broken, which has just wrapped its second season. And Vic joins us this hour to share some of the standout moments. Hi, Vic. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me, my friend. Absolutely. Recovery isn't limited to drugs and alcohol. This podcast is about how we're all broken sometimes and need help. How has that idea infused the second season? Yeah, you know, one of the things that makes me so proud about this show is how these stories connect with people, even if you've never gone through the kind of pain that our guests talk about. Hmm. Um yeah, I, I look at where we are, I guess, as a society, not to get too philosophical, but like, you know, our nation's politics, if, if that's any indication of where we are as a society, there's a dearth of empathy and compassion. Um, and if our show helps just a little bit in bringing some of that back to listeners, I mean, that's huge. I mean, that's a win. Um, and I've said this a lot, you know, recovery is a big umbrella term. And, and this show isn't just limited to recovery from drugs and alcohol, as you mentioned. We wanted to show the human condition under many things that cause us suffering. And, um, you know, a lot of people always ask me, Ryan, what my favorite episodes were from seasons one and two. And I, I can't really give an answer because I'm just so moved and emotionally uh, invested in all of them. I think that recovery is really a journey as opposed to something that's like one and done. Can you reflect on the everyday challenges of recovery? Yeah. I mean, recovery and, and, and being sober, especially is living life on life's terms. Um, so think about the everyday things that, that everyone has to face that you, you had to face, right? Like we have tough days at work. We have arguments with our partners, right? There's bad traffic, you know, things like that, right? Well, for someone in recovery, 
there's the added component of just trying to stay sober through all of that. You know, these everyday things are like landmines, and they certainly can be like landmines, you know, for people in recovery, because I know that I've lost my privilege to use drugs and alcohol. And as much as there's sometimes a part of us that really wants to make all the bad things go away by getting high, it's absolutely the one thing we can't do. And sometimes even traffic can be. Yeah. Uh, frustrating for us, something that knocks you off your balance. Well, we're going to start the hour with Jessica Duenas. Her story's unique because it's really the first time you've profiled someone in the early stages of their journey. A note that Duenas' story may not be suitable for all listeners. Jessica grew up with low self-esteem, had her first drink in college. It was a friend's 18th birthday party and these guys were just throwing back shots and I remember looking at it and I you know again my self-esteem was so low because I didn't think that I was you know really worth anything and I remember I drank and I was like oh this is nasty but I immediately loved the way it felt immediately it was Mm -hmm. crazy it immediately took away some of that inhibition that I always felt a lot of that insecurity that I always felt a lot of it just kind of melted away I realized that I could be fun (laughs) you know And be accepted. Yeah, yeah. Over time, happy hours turned into drinking in private so friends wouldn't wag their fingers. By the time she hit what seemed like rock bottom, she was a successful teacher. In rehab, she met a man who helped her find her footing. I mean, you know, we were always encouraging each other. We had this discussion about, like, our own journey. So we would make sure to go to our own meetings and we had, like, our own recovery friends. But then every now and then we would go to a meeting together. And, you know, that was really fun to do. We had like one specific meeting that we would go to together. It was actually an LGBTQ meeting that I would go to because I felt comfortable there in terms of being an ally. And even though he was straight, he actually agreed to come to those meetings with me. It was really sweet because, you know, like I said, that was definitely out of his comfort zone. But for me, he was doing it. Mm. And um, then we would always go out to dinner after that meeting. And it was just a really nice really nice experience. Um, So yeah, I mean, that's how we helped each other out. And even when COVID hit, you know, we decided to like move in together because, you know, because of quarantine, we knew being apart and being isolated would be bad for us, especially because the centers, wherever meetings were happening, they were closing down. So as addicts and alcoholics, we were losing our safe spaces. Jessica's recovery was getting stronger. But the pandemic was really hard on her partner. By April, Jessica figured out he was relapsing. He was really struggling, being so isolated away from the gym and his recovery community. And he lied to her about using heroin again. He'd disappear back to his old apartment to get high, and she'd go looking for him. And then he'd apologize and come home. One day, it was a Tuesday, He said he was just going out to the gas station. But Jessica got worried. So I went back to the apartment. Lo and behold, the car was in the parking lot. Got to the apartment, knocked on the door, nothing. I called the phone. I could hear it ringing, nothing. And I knew he was in there because his phone was in there. So I started banging really hard on the door. He wasn't answering. A neighbor came out. I guess it was like a neighbor slash somebody who had access to keys. Like I guess somebody who worked for the building. And um, he came out and I was like, look, like open the door. He's sick in there, you know, and he wouldn't let me in. He thought that I was trying to break into the damn apartment. And so then, you know, he wasn't helping me. So I grabbed 
a fire hydrant that was right there. Mm. And I, not fire hydrant, a uh, fire extinguisher. Yeah. I grabbed it and I started slamming it against the door, you know, with all my strength. And, you know, he was like, I'm going to call 911. And I was like, go ahead, because clearly, like, he's sick in there and you're not helping me. Like, and I knew he could get into the apartment. Mm. So he called 911. And then, of course, he's on the phone. He's like, yeah, there's this tall black woman trying to break into an apartment. And, you know, this oh, is like, no. Brianna Taylor had freaking died in March. And so the police came. I was still hysterical. I couldn't keep myself together because I already felt what was happening. And so they pinned me up against the wall and I was screaming and I was, they finally, the guy opened the door for the cops. And of course they walk in and he's dead. Oh no, Jessica. Yeah. Every time I tell this story, I have a different reaction. Like right now I'm just angry. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was dead. And then the cop lets me go like, oh, okay, like I guess she was right. And I was just so angry that the guy didn't trust me. I was so angry that I didn't get there in time. I couldn't believe that he was actually dead. You know, like I had just seen him two, three hours ago. I couldn't believe that I was the last person that he had interacted with. You know, I, there were just so many things that I couldn't process and believe. Yeah. And then I had to call his mom and tell her that he was dead. And then I called his brother and told him that he was dead. And then, you know, his mom came, like, was there within like a half hour. And, you know, nobody, first of all, telling a mother that her son is dead is one of the worst experiences ever. And then seeing her see her dead son is another one of the most, the worst experiences ever. And then seeing him, he was just so blue. You know, I, you know, I just couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it. It's an image that's stuck in my head. It's like, I mean, I'll never forget that. And, you know, thankfully recently I've been better at remembering positive memories because, you know, he was so much more than that moment. He was so much more than that moment, but it was just so traumatic. And from there, I fell apart. I relapsed that night. I went to the liquor store on the way home from his apartment. You know, I saw the coroner carry him out. I was able to like touch his hair, you know, like say bye. And then they took him out and, you know, I never saw him again. And so, yeah, I went home and I drank and, you know, everybody that I told it completely shocked them because I was hiding, you know, I was ashamed of his own addiction, you know? And so telling everybody, it was just very difficult because I was so far away. Nobody could be there to <laughs> no one could be there to comfort me I know. You know and so I was just there by myself and I was drinking and I ended up in the hospital and then I mean since then I ended up in the hospital like seven damn times you know and so I mean I'm okay enough today but that was yeah. the worst experience ever I'm crying with you um because you know, I've, I've seen it. I've seen, you know, people die like that. And, and I know, um, I'm sorry you had to deal with that because you tried so hard to get him help and there's nothing we can do. Jessica and I both needed to take a break after that story. But Jessica has persevered in her recovery. Vic Vela, creator and host of CPR's podcast, Back From Broken, speaking there with Jessica Duenas about the often rocky road to recovery. 
the line that stands out is that he was so much more than that moment, Vic, those words. He was so much more than that moment. To carry that with you and try to remember that there are other dimensions of a person, you know, despite the horror of that story. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, I, actually, I didn't know you were going to play that, that clip, and, and it always gets to me uh, every time I hear that, because Jessica, first of all, I mean, what a brave woman she is, you know, to tell her story. And her story is so important because it shows how hard it is for, for people to stay sober and how some people have really, you know, difficult journeys. Jessica has been out of hospitals and, and rehab centers. Um, and I think a lot of people can relate to her struggle and anyone who has lost someone to addiction. Uh, you know, I, um, that's why I started crying because it made me think of, of the friends who I've lost, like... I don't know how many people I've lost in my life to non-natural causes, Mm. uh, but I've lost a lot. And the pandemic as an exacerbating force, I think that that excerpt reflects that. Let's get back to Jessica's story. So she quit the teaching job she loved moved to Florida to be closer to her mom, and now channels her emotions through writing. Jessica says she actually still does get to teach her old students in a way. Now she's doing it through her life example. And that's really why Jessica is telling her story. Even though she doesn't have more than a few months of sobriety under her belt, she knows that at each step of the recovery journey, people need an example. We need to see ourselves in someone else's struggles, in someone else's triumphs. I actually, I just got my two-month chip, like literally. And I think that people, thank you. And I think that people (laughs) do need to know that I busted my ass to get to that two-month point. And I mean, and I'm not sitting here saying that I'll never do it again. God willing, I won't. For today, I won't. That's all I can focus on, but. That's all that matters. Yeah. Um, And I'm so glad you brought that up because, uh, you know, something I hear in in the recovery rooms a lot is uh, two years is a long time. But two months is a really, really long time because those initial months are so, they're tough. They're tough. And to get through them, it takes a lot of courage. And so congratulations. How has your image of yourself changed? You know, when you look back on the image that you talked about as a kid and and how you looked and how you thought of yourself. Thank God it's so much better. I feel that I'm a great person. I think I'm a loving person. I do think I'm beautiful inside and out. I feel that I deserve the world. And why not? I know I have a gift. I know I'm here for a purpose. If I didn't die last year, it's damn sure because I'm here for a purpose because I could have died a couple times last year. And the fact that I didn't lets me know that God, the universe, higher power, whatever anybody else wants to call it, wants me here for a reason. And so for that, when I look in the mirror, I feel good. And it's not just because I might like the outside. It's because of everything that I carry in my heart. A special show today, Stories About Recovery, with my colleague Vic Vela, creator and host of CPR's podcast, Back From Broken, which just wrapped its second season. We're hearing highlights. And, uh, you know, there's one episode, Vic, 
that showcases something you think is often overlooked, that many 12-step programs encourage a relationship with a higher power. Uh, But that could be a barrier. Why is that? (laughs) Well, gosh, now we're going to talk about God, right? Nothing nothing controversial about that at all. Um, Yeah, that's a tough one, Ryan. I mean, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who say, okay, I I need help, I want to get help, but I don't want to sit in a 12-step meeting talking about God. And, you know, that's not exactly the entirety of what those meetings are, but I understand their point. And and that can be a problem, you know, especially when admitting that you need help is hard enough to begin with. Um, and for me, you know, I was struggling with that a little bit myself, you know, because, look, for many years, God was no friend of mine, or, or so I thought. And, and, and then I started reading a book called One Breath at a Time, and it's by Kevin Griffin, and it talks about how Buddhism connects with the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. And... Buddhism became my spiritual path, and it's, it's really just about doing the next right thing, living a life that focuses on compassion rather than resentment. And, and, and Ryan, you didn't know me before getting sober, but that's huge for someone like me. You know, I'd get in fights with Lakers fans at Nuggets games. I would storm out of the classroom cursing at teachers when I was a little kid. So Buddhism has been a total game changer for me, and I, I owe a lot of that to Kevin Griffin. Kevin Griffin, a talented musician who struggled with addiction, felt directionless in his own life, and at one point became homeless. Uh, Then, indeed, he discovered Buddhism and started writing about it. What makes Buddhism such a natural fit for recovery is that right in the core teaching of Buddhism is the Four Noble Truths. The first truth is the truth that there is suffering, but the second truth is the key, which says that our suffering is really caused by our craving and by our clinging. And that, of course, makes it a partner of addiction. It's, it's defining almost that our lives are almost defined by addiction. It's the constant craving of addiction. It's, yeah. the, it's the ultimate form of suffering. Yeah. So then the third noble truth, though, says that if we stop craving, that there, that's, there's freedom. And so, wow, okay, that's what, that's what we want to know. That's, you know, in the 12 steps, that's saying we came to believe that the power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I'll put the power aside for now, but just to say that it's saying, yeah, we can be restored to sanity, and Buddhism says the same thing. And then the fourth truth is the path that gives us the tools. And, and so it's very similar in that way to the, the steps in terms of being very practical and about life itself. It's not esoteric. It's not metaphysical. Let's talk about God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the God issue as it relates to the 12 steps, you know, that's a common barrier. Yeah. As you know, that people put up when it comes to the 12 steps. I'll often hear people say, well, I know I need help, but I don't want to sit in a meeting and talk about God. And some people go a step further and say they're against any, they're against religion or whatever. And Mm -hmm. now the 12 steps says it's not a religious program, obviously, but there are a lot of references to Christianity (laughs) in the Alcoholics Anonymous book. Let's be real. For sure. Please talk because this, this is really important. Please talk about how using Buddhism as a companion can help people deal with that God part. Yeah. 
besides the fact that I wanted to teach meditation to people in recovery, this is the second big reason why I wanted to do this work, the obstruction that I saw people had with God and the, my sense that you could use Buddhism as a way to work with that. And, and I will say, because this is such a deep and broad topic, that my second book called A Burning Desire, Dharma God and the Path of Recovery, is totally about this. And yeah. it, it took a whole book for me to explain my thinking about it. So I, I will try to do so in less than book length form here for you. <laughs> Cliff's Notes version of God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. just... <laughs> so it comes down to fundamentally Dharma as God. And so then you have to understand what is Dharma. <laughs> so the Dharma refers to essentially the teachings of the Buddha, although it has a broader meaning of just truth, kind of spiritual truth. So uh, the idea for me is that if I turn my will and my life over to the power of the Dharma, then what I'm doing is I'm trying to follow or live in accordance with these teachings, which are things like mindfulness. I'm going to try to turn my will and my life over to the power of mindfulness. I'm going to try to turn my will and my life over to the power of loving kindness, of right action, you know, of right intention, of right effort. So the key, it seems to me, to God in the steps is that we recognize that we're talking about powers greater than ourselves. And the problem for addicts is that we try to be that power or that we fight the powers that yeah. exist that are unfightable and the process is really one in which we try to live in harmony and let go of the results let go of controlling and that's why my story as you were kind of pointing out was realizing like when I was trying to make myself into a rock star or mm. into a novelist and the world was pushing back, it's because I wasn't really moving in harmony with what needed to happen. And when I started to just show up and do what was in front of me and what the world was calling for, then everything kind of played out much better. So it's, it's really about this kind of non-conflict with the world and trying to just do the next right thing. Of course, that means you have to figure out what that is, you know, what, what's right. But, but it basically means you don't have to leap and <laughs> just take a small step. Just take the next step. Like, as we know, it's like, just don't drink or use today. Yeah. You know, just do the, the little steps and then things unfold. Kevin Griffin. With Vic Vela in Back From Broken, CPR's podcast about recovery, we are showcasing Season 2 in a special Colorado Matters, which continues in the next half hour. One man's journey leads to jail and to an epiphany. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. August 2019, a Colorado Springs man watched police officers shoot his 19-year-old cousin. When they started shooting, I kind of like froze. From that moment on, 
he had one goal, to change policing. Episode 2 of Systemic from Colorado Public Radio, available free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A special hour today, stories of the journey back from broken. I came down that rabbit ears pass into the valley, and I, it was just beautiful. I really felt like this was a new beginning for me, and I got a little tear in my eye, and I was just like, you know, this is it. I'm going to, like, be a good dad. I'm going to get in shape. I, you know, I had all these plans. The voice of Matthew Jarvis of Denver, and before we hear more about his journey, Vic Vela joins us, host of CPR's recovery podcast, Back From Broken. And uh, Vic, everyone's story is unique, certainly, but I wonder if you find commonalities. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, suffering's the great um, equalizer mm. in society, you know, and and suffering doesn't care how rich or poor you are. And, and even though my suffering may have been different than someone else's, I know what they're going through and, and vice versa. And that pain uh, that you carry with you everywhere, the, you know, the self-defense mechanisms we put up to avoid ourselves from being hurt and and the self-medicating, I mean, the constant self-medicating. So, you know, I don't care where you're from, we can all relate to suffering. And, and this, again, goes back to empathy. There's something liberating in thinking of suffering as the great equalizer, in its inherent ability to connect to us. There's something that may soften the suffering as a result. So we, we heard there from Matthew Jarvis, he grew up in a troubled home. His parents fought. His dad left when he was seven. Matthew fell into a world of substances like crack cocaine and alcohol. There was gang violence. His personal relationships were difficult, obsessive, and emotionally abusive. His journey to recovery took many turns. He ultimately landed behind bars. And just a note that this story contains some strong language and may not be suitable for all listeners. I was in this jail and and I'm I'm reading the Bible, I'm doing push-ups, I'm reading the NA, I'm going to the meetings. I'm really thinking like, okay, this is it. I'm going to stop. This is my shot again, like one of those rocky things. And I'm in there building myself up. And By this time it's Rocky 5, right? It's Rocky yeah. t- 20, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's and 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 amazingly my father came and visited me while I was there. And I hadn't seen him in uh a long time. And so that was kind of a unique moment to see him through the glass and the phone and that was like the one time I had a dad, you know, and it was a, it was a it was an important moment for me. Mm. I could tell that this like the pain was still there with him too. It was just so, such an amazing moment for me. And so, you know, I thought I was done, man. After nine months in jail, Matthew was released on unsupervised probation. He'd used the time to focus on his sobriety and was ready to start his life over again. But on his first day out, a small trigger would almost instantly undo his progress. So they let me out of the jail and I went to my car that day, and the back seat was a carton of Newport cigarettes. And I saw those cigarettes, and the thought clicked in my brain that my dealer trades Newports for crack. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it was immediate. And I all the jail, the suicide attempt, the girl, the the push-ups, that all went out the window. I mean, this is gone immediately. I was like on my way to the dealers. After months of jail and after all that, just what that carton of cigarettes triggered. Yeah, just to go through all that and be absolutely convinced that I was done. And it just took one small like stimulus like that. And it was boom. When I saw that carton, it was like my whole body lit up. You know, the energy came in. It's like, okay, here we go. I'll just do it this one time on my way to my mom's and then we're going to have dinner. And, you know, I went and that, and then that turned into back into the mire, back into the abyss. For a lot of people in recovery, it's often the little things, the everyday things like cigarettes in a back seat that can trigger a relapse. It speaks to the insanity of addiction. And that's what happened to Matthew. It's devastating, you know, because it highlights this the symptom of addiction, which is ongoing use despite negative consequences. Yeah. You know, I don't know if people without addiction can understand that, but it was almost like, um, consequences be damned. Yeah. That wasn't enough to stop me. You know, obviously several months in jail didn't prepare you to give up drugs. Um, you were still using, um, what finally got you to turn away from drugs for good? Yeah. Well, I was getting close to the end. A lot of people were just done with me. And what happened was I started craving again. And so my dealer told me, hey, let me use your car and I'll uh, give you some more. And so I let him use my car and I ended up sitting in his house with these other gang banger dudes that were with him. And while I was in there, somebody got assaulted. They assaulted some girl out in the front yard and I watched it. And I'm sitting there with these guys. I mean, they're literally telling me how they're like killers and telling me about stuff they do. And I had the crack in my pocket. And so I was like, yeah, well, can I use your bathroom? And so I went in their bathroom and I started smoking in the bathroom, which is like a big no-no apparently with these folks. And so when I opened the door, they were all standing outside the door. And one of them was like, you know, what, what are you doing, man? Are you smoking in my, you know, this was a huge offense. And so I got really scared and I just decided I was going to walk through them and out the door. And a couple of them had bottles in their hands. And so I walked past them thinking somebody's going to hit me over there. Like I knew I was going to get hit with something. And I didn't. I walked out the door and the, the door shut behind me and they never, nobody came after me or anything. And so I went and sat on a bus stop on Colfax. It's, you know, it's freaking cold. And I didn't have any money. I didn't have anything. And, and I see my car going up and down Colfax with dudes in my car. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. So... I had this little phone, and so I called Stout Street again, and a very important person in my recovery, Cheryl Wells, answered. And she, she said, you know what? We know you've been out there, and you need to bring your ass back here. <laughs> and she said it like that. She was kind of like a mom to yeah. me. And uh, so I went back, man. And this time when I was back, something was different with me. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted to take it seriously. I had been um, just hurt to a point and scared to a point and, and, and thrashed about in such a way that I didn't, I didn't have any reservations or about the fact that I needed a lot of help. Tell me about this guy who was there. He... He was there the first time through at, at Stout Street, and then you guys, you know, both relapsed around the same time and came back. 
yeah. at the same time and, and how his story impacted yours. Yeah. So when I got back, he was there. I was working on myself, doing my best uh, to take responsibility for me and what, what I needed to do. And this guy was my roommate. I think about seven months in, it comes into the room and he said, okay, they're, they're letting me go. I get to go to the next phase. And he was all happy and stuff. And I was pissed because I knew he wasn't working as hard as I was. And so mm-hmm. I went over to the program director. I told him, you know, what the hell that you're letting this guy go and he's not ready. And I am, and I've been working my ass off and and he said to me, he said, you know what, Matt, we're going to let him go because he's already dead. And that's why we're not going to let you go. Wow. And it floored me. Like, I never knew that, that when people hold me accountable and don't let me get my way, that means they care about me. Like, it didn't, that never clicked. And so I'm feeling emotional. So I went back to the room and my daughter, you know, there's a picture of my daughter in the bedroom and I just had a moment of like, damn, you know, I'm, I need to stay. I need to finish this thing out. People care about me and I need to care about myself and I don't need to leave right now. I'm not ready. And so that was a huge moment for me to of just more release, more surrender. And I stayed. I never went back to drugs and alcohol after that. And Matthew Jarvis became a group leader at Stout Street Foundation, the rehab facility that helped him reclaim his life. He also went back to school, got his bachelor's and two master's degrees, and is now a licensed professional counselor. We are sharing stories of recovery today with Vic Vela, creator and host of CPR's podcast, Back From Broken. And hello again, Mr. Vela. Howdy. At the top of the show, I mentioned a tweet you sent. It's actually something you'd said in a profile in 303 Magazine. You also said, your life can change in ways that you can't even imagine right now if you just give yourself a chance. I have to assume from reading that that for a long time, you didn't think you deserved a chance? You know, it's, it, that's a, it's a really great question. You know, it's not even so much that I thought I, I didn't deserve a chance. It's that I was so accustomed to living a life of despair and destruction that I, I just got used to living like that. Um, you know, so like you have, uh, like you, you brush your teeth every morning or every evening or whatever, right? Well, I no. smoke crack. And that's just what I did. And, and it really wasn't until I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I mean, I, it was exhausting living that way that I finally asked myself, are you really going to go through all of this again tomorrow? Are you really going to go through all of this again tomorrow? And, and and once I finally surrendered to the notion that my life had become unmanageable, then I said, okay, now, now you got a chance to get better now. So take it. Dogs help too, big fella, huh? <laughs> right. You know, it's funny. You learn uh, broadcasting during the pandemic that a dog <laughs> is really loud when she slurps water, by the way. So Ryder says hi, everyone. How has the pandemic been in, in just a few moments before we hear the next story? How has it been on your sobriety? Gosh, it, it, it was a rough time. Like I got through it because 
I had a playbook, right? Like I have my recovery playbook. And I guess for people in recovery, if you're secure in your, in your recovery, uh, frankly, a lot of us handled it better than, you know, regular people because we had the tools and we knew how to handle uncertain situations. Um, mm. But not everyone can be, not everyone was in the same boat. You know, some people may not have been so secure in their recovery and, you know, like Jessica, you know, the things that derail you. you, you were used to that community aspect of meetings, you were used to getting hugs from people, you were used to, in my case, I, I key components of my recovery is, is physical exercise, like playing basketball and, and things like that, and all of a sudden it's gone. It was an adjustment, and it was not fun at all, um, and, and I, we lost some people, there's no. no doubt about it, we lost some people, but thank, thank God. Um, I took it one day at a time, and I'm still here. You mentioned Jessica, Jessica Duenas, who we heard earlier this hour. I'd like now to listen to some of Catherine Cho's journey, which is not about addiction. Her recovery begins after she had her first baby. A note that this story may not be suitable for all listeners. You know, I felt really excited. I'd always wanted to be a parent. Um, I hadn't really given much thought to it before, but for me, it just felt just like a blessing and something that, you know, I'd always hoped for. What were your feelings uh, in the days leading up to the birth of your child? Um, it was a lot of excitement, but also anxiety. I think that's, you know, goes for almost any first time parent. You focus so much on birth and like the whole experience of birth. And it's such an unknown. We did all the classes, you know, I read all the birth stories. And <laughs> yeah, you kind of try to prepare as much as you can. But I think you at some point have to accept that actually it's not something you can really prepare for. So he was born and you named him Cato. Yes. Where does that name come from? <laughs> so that, that was my husband's idea. I actually wasn't super keen on the name, but my husband really wanted a name that was a bit unique. And what's also nice about it is that it kind of sounds Asian, actually but it's also Western as well. So we liked that aspect. So Cato's in your life now, your first child, you're 30. What was life like at the beginning? How are you feeling with Cato uh, in the world? It, everybody gets so excited when there's a new baby. And I remember, you know, we, we had friends come over and hold him and going for walks with him. Yeah, it, it was a really fun and beautiful time at the beginning. Sounds like everyone's just really happy for you. And of course, you know, Cato's this beautiful boy. Um, when did you notice that you were getting stressed out and anxious about the baby? So I, I didn't really notice it until we'd made the decision to go to the U.S. So I had this idea that because we had such a long period of time for our parental leave, that we could take this long trip like a two-month trip to the U.S. Both my husband and my families they're all in the States, so we went from California to Virginia and New Jersey. And I suppose it was in the planning of it that I started noticing that I was feeling anxious just because everyone thought it was a terrible idea. They thought it was reckless. Um, Cato was only two months old, so they just thought it was a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah, so it's a different layer of stress. Talk to me about Catherine when the psychosis began. 
So the psychosis began at the very tail end of the trip. My son was three months old at that point. We were in New Jersey. And for me, it culminated after many days of not sleeping, actually almost weeks, I suppose, of not sleeping. And just, I was at my in-law's house at this point, and it was just a constant, um, almost barrage of concern and worry and fear. And it all came from a, you know, a place of love and it was nothing, you know, Mm -hmm. with bad intentions. But for me, I... I had this conversation with my father-in-law where he was telling me about someone he knew who had shaken her baby and the baby had gone blind. And Mm. hearing that, I immediately just felt this fear or just, you know, like this thought, kind of like, you know, would I do that? Is that what he's afraid that I'm going to do? And when I went to go upstairs to feed my son, his face had changed at that point. So his face to me looked like the face of a devil. such a heavy thing to to have in your head so when you saw Cato and it seemed like you were seeing something else or, or someone else's face I mean can you describe what, what you were seeing do you still remember that yeah it was very clear to me I mean for me it, it looked real you know his face just did not look like his face he was looking at me I thought with fear his eyes had changed my brain was trying to understand that this was what was happening and I, I couldn't accept it, but I also couldn't disbelieve what I was seeing. It was a very strange experience. What happened next? So I immediately panicked. I really felt like something really bad was going to happen. And I just had this sense of everything was shaking. And, you know, I, I didn't know what was happening, but I just knew that if I stayed in that house, something bad was going to happen. And so I just told my husband, that, you know, I needed him to trust me and to believe everything I was saying. I really just kind of clung to him in that sense. I just told him I needed to leave the house. So he packed everything up. We went to a hotel nearby, I suppose. But at that point, it it just really escalated and got so much, so much worse. At that point, I started losing a sense of time. So time was no longer linear to me. I, I was, I thought we were stuck in this hotel room as almost like a simulation. And I kept seeing us trying to leave and not being able to leave. And I was hearing voices and seeing figures kind of running around the room and leaving. And my husband was trying to get me to sleep. So I slept kind of, but didn't. And at that point, I thought I was hearing the voice of God. Um, And I thought God was basically telling me that my whole life was actually a simulation, that I was in hell, I had died, that my husband was Dante. Wow. Yes, and that I was Beatrice, so I was the one who had to lead him through the circles of hell. So how did you end up going to the hospital? My husband could tell, obviously, that something was really wrong. I was, you know, I was calling my brother and talking to him about all these different things, and I was just not acting myself. And at that point, my memories are a bit blurry. But he basically, he called his parents and asked them to pick up our son to take him home. And he then he just immediately drove me to the emergency room because he didn't know what was going on. Were you telling James what you were hearing at that time? So no, I didn't. I, I didn't tell him anything about that just because... I didn't want to scare him. I understand. (laughs) So (laughs) 
I didn't want to terrify him that we were in hell. So I was just like, he's going to figure this out. <laughs> I'll just let him figure it out. <laughs> At the hospital, Catherine was diagnosed with postpartum psychosis, thought to be brought on by hormone shifts and sleep deprivation. She spent four days in the emergency ward where she was clearly losing her mind rapidly. Her thoughts were chaotic, she was tearing at her clothes, and she was seeing demons. Her husband, James, didn't have a choice. He signed Catherine over to the care of the New Jersey Psychiatric Facility. Catherine was heavily medicated, and she had become completely detached from reality. After three weeks, Catherine was released into her husband's care. James now had to figure out how to safely move his wife and Cato back home to London. He had to assess how Catherine would react to living outside of the psychiatric ward. Despite doctors' reassurances, James was still worried. When you held Cato for the first time after not seeing him for a while, how did that feel? So my parents brought Cato, I think it was my second day out of the ward. And yeah, it, it felt really unfamiliar and... To be honest, physically painful. I, I had a really difficult time holding him. I just wanted to give him back straight away. Physically painful. Um, how does that, f I mean, I guess describe what it's like. I couldn't imagine it feeling physically painful to hold a child. It really felt wrong to me. It felt like I shouldn't be touching him. I shouldn't be holding him. And I think it's probably a protection mechanism. That's how I've at least explained it to myself afterward because I think a lot of women who go through postpartum psychosis feel this way. It just it just felt like I shouldn't be holding him and I just couldn't like do it. So I remember I held him for maybe a second and then I just I handed him back to my father. So recovery was very slow. At some point you fell into a depression. How did that affect you? We came back to London and I was starting to feel better. My antipsychotic medication was lowered. And that was, you know, a relief because I could, you know, I had trouble sitting still or looking at light. And this is apparently very common in the sense that most people who go through psychosis then go through a depression. But for me, it was a complete shock. Um, and I think it was three weeks after we came back, I just couldn't get out of bed. It was a very deep clinical depression. What did it take to make you feel more like your old self? To be honest, it just took time. So when I was finally able to kind of sit up in a chair without feeling physically in pain and actually notice that there was light outside the window, then I realized, you know, I'm actually getting better, that I'm, I'm actually myself. Can you remember the first time you could play with Cato? And were you scared at first, you know, when you were playing with him? And... It wasn't that I felt scared. It was just I felt very distant. I felt so distant from him and just, you know, he could have been anybody's baby, but also it just didn't feel right. It was very gradual for me to feel like a connection to him again. And I just had to make it almost a practice, like an intention that I would, you know, do this and that I would become more like a parent for him. So... How old is he now? He's three now. Wow. What's uh, what's he like? He's very cute. He's very sweet. He's very stubborn. Yeah, we have an amazing relationship now. I would say, you know, he was really close to James before, but now it's more 50-50. But he's, uh, you know, obsessed with dinosaurs and trains, and he's a very happy, a happy kid. 
Catherine Cho with Back From Broken creator and host Vic Vela, just some of her remarkable journey. And Vic, before we go, you have commented that public radio is the only place you've ever worked sober. And I just want to note that January marked six years of sobriety for you. Do I have that right? Yeah. Did you have some way of celebrating or at least marking that occasion, keeping in mind that it was mid-pandemic? You know, I've never been one to set like I don't celebrate birthdays or anything like that. So like I literally, I think, just watched a Frasier marathon uh, <laughs> with, with a special friend and, and of course my dog. Uh, but those are the best days, uh, you know, and and we, we had a little ice cream cake like I turned six years old or something. Um, but I, I will say, God willing, if there is a seventh year, which which I will accomplish by taking things one day at a time. Um, I'll probably have a bigger, more appropriate celebration with hugs and and people. You can't go wrong with ice cream cake. Vic, thanks so much for sharing this hour with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Vic Vela, here the second season of Back From Broken through Apple, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts, also online at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. Carl Bielek is the executive producer of Colorado Matters, and the Back From Broken team is Joe Erickson, Rachel Estabrook, Dennis Funk, Daniel Mesher, Luis Antonio Perez, Rebecca Romberg, Matthew Simonson, and Brad Turner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.